They change cultures. They're heat seekers. They run at adversity and embrace change. These are the room tilters. Somebody who can change the temperature in a room when they walk in. Mm. And that's metaphorical for somebody who can influence those around them and make it such an impact quickly, emphatically, and long-lasting, whether it be an organization, a team, a relationship, whatever it might be. This is the Room Tilters Podcast, presented by Limitless Minds. Co-hosts DJ Eitzen and Harry Wilson, founders of peak performance and leadership consulting company, Limitless Minds, explore how the best and brightest change the temperature in a room. From sports, the military, entertainment and media, clinical psychologists to CEOs, this podcast will navigate what it takes to think big and go far. And now, DJ and Harry. Hey, good afternoon, Captain Tom Chaby. How are you doing? Great. How are you? Doing awesome. Uh, Harry and I are really excited to have you on the Room Tilters podcast. You know, oftentimes we talk about how the how individuals can tilt a room. And, and with you, you've worked with so many different types of effective teams uh, and organizations. We're just excited not only to see how you tilt a room individually, but also how the teams that you've worked with have been able to do that. So, so welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, Harry, I'll get us started here. Tom, for the listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, and your journey up to this point. You know, my journey started back in Parkridge, New Jersey, where I grew up. I was a moderately effective athlete, played football, ran track, and skied competitively. Um, being on a team was the most important thing to me. Um, it's where I got my relevance. It's where I found the most joy. And it's really what shaped me as a person. I was eager to always improve and find, find ways to you know, give me a competitive advantage. I was never the fastest, the strongest, or the best athlete. I was always pretty good. So I was looking for some tools that helped me break out and be more effective. College athletic career ended. I, I desperately missed being part of a team. And at that point, my search began. And what I found was the military. And I set out to become a U.S. Navy SEAL, um, applied, um, got accepted to give it a try to go through training, which once you get accepted, only 25% of those that do get accepted make it through the training pipeline. And then I went out to Coronado, California to go through SEAL training. And it was a perfect fit for me. One of those things that really I had tons of was resilience. I was a very resilient guy. And we value resilience in the SEAL world. So I did well there and then went on and uh, continued as a U.S. Navy SEAL, a leader in the SEAL community for 26 years. Wow. Toward the end of my career, I uh, started working with organizations first to get an insight into what made them so effective. I had the privilege to work with teams like the Dallas Cowboys, the Crimson Tide Alabama football, then Google, Facebook for the corporate side, another great company in New York City called Next Jump. And we were looking at why are these companies so effective? Why are these teams so successful? And we tried to take their best practices and put them together in, into a model, if you may, that would help us replicate it on a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. So from there, I retired from the military. And then I started uh, working with organizations to help them take their performance, their team effectiveness, to the next level and to optimize their performance. That's awesome, Tom. I mean, um, you know, obviously, you know, we've, we've got a chance to see you 
speak. We've had a San Francisco do, um, you know, lead workshops and really talk about the concept of team effectiveness. And I, I wanted to ask you, you know, from a leadership perspective, those that are in uh, that may be in leadership roles or or aspiring leaders, what are some things that really may be a surprise to those that have not been in the in the Navy SEAL community, right? That have not been in special ops, that they may they might find it being a, a surprise relative to you know, really leading groups like that and what that environment's like. One thing that organizations I work with find surprising is a SEAL team is so similar to any organization. It's similar to a pharmaceutical corporate environment. It's similar to a company that makes widgets. It's similar to a service-oriented industry. And The reality is, in my opinion, a team is a team is a team. We all have different objectives that we're after. The SEAL objective is specific, and that's well known by your listeners. But to make those objectives come to life, it takes organizational effectiveness. You have to have a team that is optimized to best effect. And what am I talking about there? A SEAL team, we have lawyers. We have an environmental consideration. We have logisticians, we have accountants, we have everything they have, with the one exception being we have operators, SEAL operators, that conduct our business on the battlefield. But other than that, we're dealing with travel, we're dealing with budgets, we're dealing with competitive advantage. Yes, Navy SEALs have to compete to get their work. It's not send in the SEALs, it's let's see who has the best product And then we will select them. So we're many times up against Green Berets, Rangers, Marine Special Operations, or sometimes even organizations and special operation teams from other nations. So just like the companies that are represented by your listeners, we're the same. And many of the people I work with find that very surprising. But once they get down to it, they realize, wow, you're right. The considerations you have for effectiveness are exactly the same that we have. I, I love that, Tom. And, and you know, it's it's interesting because when when I heard first heard you speak um, in the spring uh, to to a very large pharmaceutical company, um, the the parallels to what you do and and where you've been to what we've done in business are are you know amazing. And um, and and you being able to bring that perspective adds a tremendous amount of value. What would you say the one thing that stands out to you is with effective teams? I, I think it's hard to break it down to one thing, mm-hmm. but to, to do that, I have to mention five things, and then I'll get to the one thing you're looking for. Like I said earlier, toward the end of my career, I had the privilege to work with many great organizations, and my, my sole focus was to find out what made them great. So I took note. I took careful note of, why is this team effective? Why is that team effective? And then I started looking at why are some teams ineffective? And when I did that, I found successful organizations all have five things in common. And I'll tell you what those five things are. The first being they have shared values. The second being they have clear expectations. Their teammates understand exactly what is expected of them. The third being their teammates buy in to the culture, they buy into the methodologies, and they buy into the standard operating procedures that that company is espousing. The fourth thing, and in my opinion, the most critical, is they have an effective system 
of accountability, mm. effective. Mm. I've rarely seen organizations that can effectively hold their teammates accountable in a non-emotional way. And then the fifth, and w- which is equally important to accountability, is the people, the teammates that work there feel empowered. So the one thing you're looking for is these great organizations understand how to synchronize those five elements and bring out this one driving force that allows their organization to find greatness. I love that. And I love, you know, that, that point you made about effective system of accountability. You know, I think that whether you're an individual performer or a leader or a team of collective team of individuals, that's typically the tipping point for sustaining long-term success and, and in fighting through adversity um, because, you know, it's, it's the ability to, especially, you know, we talk about going, you know, being neutral a lot. And and Tom, I know that you've, you've worked with us and and, and Trevor Moad um, quite a bit. And and so, you know, you, you, I think you're a believer in that, that neutral approach. No, I'm not, I'm not a believer. I stole it and I use it. It is a phenomenal concept. (laughs) I mean, I think that that effective system of accountability is a really a core principle of neutrality, right? And, and non-negativity and being able to go to the facts, go to the truth and ultimately behavior thinking, right? Going to behavior. So I appreciate you adding, you know, putting that in there and, and um, that being one of the, the five, you know, kind of pillars that you see. You know, Tom, I was thinking about this this week in, in preparation for this, this podcast. When you're looking at adversity with teams and how teams uh, come up against that, Tell us about like your thoughts on on adversity to see what effective teams do there. Oh, fantastic. Uh, You know, adversity is a dynamic we all deal with. And I I will add adversity is ultimately what you make it. For me, how I perceive adversity has evolved significantly over the past 30 years. I look back back to the time before I was a SEAL and, and, and I was fairly resilient and, and I was that guy that could persevere through resilience, through adversity, excuse me, fairly well. But I had no idea what I was capable of until I went through SEAL training, until I was a member of a team that was fighting battles on the battlefields around the world. And I look at adversity differently now, significantly differently. Just to back up a little bit on 9-11, like all of us, we know exactly where we were. Mm-hmm. I was in Colombia, South America. I was talking to a friend on the phone who said, if everything's okay with you, you're obviously not watching television. I turned the TV on and saw the first plane hit the tower, Mm. the the replay of that. And then I saw the second video shot. And then minutes later, uh, the buildings tumbled. Now, it doesn't get much more adverse than that for a country, for a community being New York City. Or, or, or for responders, which I was being an active duty service member at the time, I knew at that moment my life would change. But I also knew at that moment that this is what I prepared for. This is why I'm in the military. And for me, I saw it as an opportunity. I was sad that we had that loss of life. And my hometown had over a dozen people perish. I grew up in North New Jersey and uh, it's kind of a feeder town for Manhattan and uh you know, I, I didn't know any of them, but they lived in my hometown. So it kind of hit home. And I, I look at adversity as this dynamic that we can make it into whatever we want. Mm-hmm. In the SEAL community, particularly in my case, I look at adversity as an opportunity, as an opportunity to separate me from the competition. I look at it as my competitive advantage to own whatever it is I'm about to endeavor. 
Yeah, I mean, um, you know, Captain Chavia, that's that's spot on. You know, I I, I believe that adversity is, is really about perspective. And like you said, it's what you make it. Um, and perspective is such a powerful word. And especially as you, you know, kind of reflect on it and try to be purposeful with your perspective. So yeah, I think you're I think you're right on. I think that's what, you know, some of the best of the best do, the folks that are able to, you know, get through adversity, whether it be on the micro scale, like on an everyday basis, or these macro, much larger issues like the one we're just talking about. And um, it's just that perspective. And and that's why we that's why we, you know, every year we commemorate 9-11, right? That's that's part of that perspective. It's not to forget. Right. Certainly not to forget is to kind of remember those that we lost to remember those that that, um, you know, were that came out of the shadows as heroes. And and um, with that, you, you begin to see, you know, how America was able to come together. Right. Um, in the face of adversity. So it's those perspective moments that that we try to you know bring out. And I think those are really important. I appreciate you sharing that. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, Tom, you, you brought up a word preparation. And I know in seeing you speak. You talk a lot about how you guys prepare as a team, how you prepare as an individual. Can you give us a glimpse behind the scenes of, of how, as a Navy SEAL, you, you prepare? <laughs> it's funny. You say that, and I just laugh, because my <laughs> wife, for the, the first part of our marriage, we've been married 12 years now, and um, she had really no idea what I'd do. She said, my husband trains. That's all he does. And, and ultimately... That's what we do. We train for what we perceive to ultimately be the inevitable. Mm -hmm. And the inevitable came on 9-11, and we were ready to respond. And, you know, you, you look at it, and, and, and I talk a little bit about, in my team effectiveness model, I talk a little bit about what is more important, talent or culture? At the end of the day, I'm, I'm going to say it's culture. Sure, you want the most talented guy that embraces the culture simultaneously, but you find me that unicorn and, and, and I'm going to pay big money for him or for her to come join my team. The reality is ultimately you're going to get some, some level of each. And, and, and I'd, I'd lean towards the culture piece because the training piece, what we do, some people would say SEALs, what they do is pretty darn sophisticated. I'd say before I came in, I had no idea how to shoot a weapon. Mm. I had no idea how to free fall parachute. I had no idea how to scuba dive an open or closed circuit. I had no idea how to plan a mission. I had no idea how to effectively lead in combat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they trained us. I trained for 31,000 hours. Wow. 31,000 hours. I keep all my training logs before I went on my first real world mission. That's 3.5 years straight with no sleep. So I trained for 31,000 hours before I went on the battlefield. I was ready. I knew how to do all those things. They were second nature to me. I didn't think about what I was doing. I was just responding. You know, they talk about Malcolm Gladwell and how you create an expert, 10,000 hour rule. You know, I mean, some of that has been debunked by other books, but in other research. But the reality is training makes a difference. Effective training makes a huge difference. And in the SEAL world, we teach our guys how to learn and then we train them effectively. I love it. And that, that, that 31,000 hours, that, that was, that's what sticks out to me the most uh, in your presentation and talking about preparing. And as we talk to these elite individual performers, the level in which they prepare is, is so far above the, the average individual. And it really is what separates and helps them tilt a room 
Um, and in this case, a team tilt a room. And that kind of gets us into, you know, when we talk about, you know, tilting a room and, you know, all the energy, all the people, you know, everything goes towards that person or that team. You know, you've mentioned a couple things, preparation, an effective system of accountability. I love that. And you said that's really important. Is there anything else that really stands out in teams that effectively tilt a room? One that I've recently been spending a lot of time contemplating is how we perceive failure. A lot of people look at failure as this negative thing that happens to us. You know, let me break it to you. We're going to fail. I probably failed a dozen times already today. And how you perceive that failure is largely going to determine what happens next. You know, I work college football teams. I'm with University of Michigan this season. And, you know, I'll talk to the quarterback. And our quarterback, Shea Patterson, great kid. I'm like, Shay, you are never going to go 100% throwing. Yeah, maybe you'll have that off game, that amazing game where everything clicks. But typically, if you throw 66%, which is what he's throwing right now, you're mm-hmm. doing pretty good. You throw over 70%, then you're, that's legendary. And so what about the other 30%? Then you talk about baseball, where they fail 70% of the time. How do you digest failure? What do you do with failure? So you talk about room tilters. I think the people that learn how to take failure, manifest it in a way that they can turn something that is typically perceived as negative and turn it into something constructive, that is game-changing. Because now you can row from every one of your micro failures and fail forward versus backwards. I love that. I think Trevor says it. He says, you know, where success and failure kind of stand back to back, that's where the opportunity lies. You got to be willing to go and fail if you really want to achieve anything. And so that's, uh, I, I love, I love that you bring that up and people that are willing to lead and tilt a room and have that significant influence are ones that are willing to fail. So thank, thanks for bringing that up. Tom, who do you admire from a leadership perspective the most? Who do you look to and say, that's the guy that's, you know, that's who I admire. Some of the leaders I admire the most are military leaders who you probably will not know. What one you'll know, Admiral McRaven, he's been famous for make your bed. He was at university of Texas. He was a seal four star. Um, I think the world of him integrity-wise. I worked with uh, General Doug Brown, another four-star general, Green Beret helicopter pilot, special operation helicopter pilot. Just an amazing person who just understood human nature at a level that it was just unbelievable to watch. Um, you know, when you look at the sports world, some names you may be more familiar with. You know, I look at Bill Belichick. I, I don't know him. I've never met him. I love how players and you you could talk right now about the Antonio Brown saga mm-hmm. you know people are saying hey things are going to be different when you get to New England they don't say that about any other team <laughs> they say that about New England because they have a, a system of accountability that doesn't put up a bullshit excuse right. my language but it's the reality of he is it's not emotional it's business it's culture it's about creating effectiveness and he does it in a way that he just strips away all all the superfluous stuff that brings nothing to the equation. And it's just factual, it's deliberate, and there's no confusion. You know what you're getting there. It's consistent and it's congruent. Something that bugs me is when I see an organization hold one athlete or one employee or one salesperson to one standard because they're a superstar 
and then they hold a different teammate employee salesperson to a different standard because they're not quite the elite element on their team that that other person was congruency is critical and my impression of what i see with new england is belich is extremely congruent and i think that consistency you know when you look when the other people on the team are are looking at the the leader and seeing are they being consistent are they being congruent that creates a level of buy-in when it's consistent like that and you do get the best version of each individual performer, which ultimately, you know, if we can get them pointed in the right direction, it'll help them reach their goals. So I love that you bring that up there. So we're, we're coming to the close here, uh, Captain Chaby. And, and so, you know, our listeners always like to have like one or two things that they can do as a call to action um, as a result of listening to this. And, and I know that you've given several awesome nuggets, you know, on the call here today. Uh, what's a call to action that you would like the listeners to hear in terms of being able to have that significant influence and, and reach their maximum potential as an individual or, or as a team? Um, I, I have two. The first being individual, and I'll start it by saying perception is everything. You know, the world you're operating in, the world you're working in, the world you're playing a sport in, you're creating it. Your perception over the challenges, your perception over the competition your perception over the fears you may have, they're your perceptions. You're the one creating them. You can change that. You can create a world that's more empowering to what you're trying to do. And I'll do a shameless advertisement for a friend of mine's book that I highly recommend called Top Dog. And it just talks about what happens biologically under pressure. Mm. I'm a junkie for this. I love performance under pressure. And it's a skill. It's not something you're born with. It's something you develop. Some people are blessed by making some early decisions that gave them the ability to be a little bit better under pressure than others, but it's a skill you can work on. So that would be my individual nugget. My team nugget would be everyone is a leader. I I don't care if you're the lowest man or lowest gal on a totem pole. Everyone is a leader. Look at it that way. You're part of a team. If you want your team to be as effective as possible, realize your contribution to it is step one. Step two is how can you help make the team better? And your insights, your critical assessments, your willingness to get vulnerable and maybe say something that is a little bit outside of the comfort zone might make the difference to make your team game-changing. You do that, and you're a room shelter. I love it. I love it, man. Uh, Captain Chaby bringing the fire, bringing the fire. That's <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. awesome. Um, yeah. So, I mean, perception, right? For whether you know, individual, a leader, perception allows you to increase your empowerment. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to pick up that book, Top Dog. And then, you know, for, for, for leadership or teams, everyone's a leader. And that kind of goes back to perception again, right? It's kind of how you perceive yourself and how you allow yourself to, you know, increase your empowerment amongst a, a group, amongst a team, amongst an organization. So I love that. Tom, I really appreciate you joining us. Before you go, though, we're going to ask you some, some, some rapid fire, you know, some fun questions to, to help people who uh, want to get to know you a little better. So are you ready for these questions? I am always ready. You know, you just mentioned Top Dogs. I don't know if this is your answer or not, but what was the last book that you read? Uh, the last book I read was, well, I, I was rereading it, and it's Daniel Pink's wor- uh, book called When. It's a great book. It's about the dynamics of time. And, you know, I think a subtitle for the book is 
not all time is created equal. I think they mentioned that quote in the book and it's the truth. You look at a, a, a football game, for example, and there are different moments in a game that are significantly more important than others. And understanding this is powerful. And the book talks about that. So fascinating read. Um, okay. Now we're shifting gears here. Best band or musician dead or alive in your opinion. Ooh. Oh, the best ever. Wow. I, I'm just going to go with the Red Hot Chili Peppers because every time I hear their music, I am pumped to dominate. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, speaking of dominating, if you were a superhero, who would you be? <laughs> wow. What a great one. I've considered this one multiple times. Oh, my God. I think I, I'm getting it right. Is it the Wolverine? Is that his name? You sound Edward. like a Michigan. You sound like a Michigan guy right now. <laughs> oh, through and through, baby. Go blue. That's awesome. Um, okay, biggest fear, and and I'm sure that you've seen a lot. So I'm really curious about what your biggest fear is. Yeah, my biggest fear is not being relevant. Okay, how about this one? I know you travel a lot. Aisle or window in a plane? Aisle or window? Good one. It, it, it depends on the time of day. If it's in the morning, it's aisle because I drink coffee like a madman until noon. If it's at night, it's the window because I don't want people bugging me because I'm sleeping. I'm the, I'm the type. I'll put my headphones in immediately, and that's my signal to uh, I don't want to have any conversation. So, okay, the last one is, and you're a talented gentleman. Do you have any hidden talents that uh, DJ and I, who've gotten to know you a little bit over the last year, that we wouldn't know about? Wow, do I have any hidden talents? Mm -hmm. I, I I'm pretty pretty straightforward. I don't think I have any hidden talents. <laughs> I have hidden interests. Yeah. that most people don't know about but talent wise i'd say probably not my interests include i love music i love anything from the 1950s i'm a, i'm a an addict for 50s tv 50s movies 50s culture i just love it not sure why but i just Ooh, it's fantastic man. that is awesome that is really awesome well listen we appreciate you um coming on to you know, really drop some knowledge on us and talk about, you know, the most effective teams and, and individuals and leaders that make up those teams. So we really appreciate you. Thanks, Tom. Well, thanks for having me. Have a good one. You've been listening to the Room Tilters podcast, hosted by DJ Eitzen and Harry Wilson, presented by Limitless Minds.